Kaylee, did you know the internet averages 500,000 new users daily? New users. Wow. No, I did not know that. <laughs> That's the population of the city of Columbus, Ohio. Brand wow. new. Joining the internet. I feel like I would be less likely to believe that if there weren't 8 billion people on earth now, I think. You know, we're focusing on populations each day the size of the city of Columbus, Ohio, but let's transition to one specific user of the internet who's been causing a lot of trouble. Kaylee, what's going on with this Russian hacker? Well, I mean, it's classic, right? Russian hacker, you know, <laughs> I feel like that's in every headline these days. Um, but yes, the U.S. State Department on Tuesday offered a $10 million reward for any information that would lead to the arrest or conviction of Mikhail Matviv, an alleged ransomware affiliate currently based in Russia. Well, I tell you, I mean, the U.S. and Russia don't have an extradition agreement, so the, the odds of uh, Mr. Matviv seeing the inside of a U.S. courtroom, at least as they stand now, aren't great. Uh, but I mean, if the odds of the extradition are really low, what is the $10 million sort of designed to do? That's what I don't get. That was kind of my question as well, um, and kind of my question anytime we put a ransom on someone who is in Russia and clearly will be protected by Russia for as long as they can be protected by Russia. So I'm not exactly sure who the $10 million is, a, is supposed to entice. Maybe there's an off chance that there's a rogue hacker, like a Mandalorian hacker who can like swoop in and do some sort of matrix style <laughs> hacking stuff. But yeah, I'm not sure if that's going to work. I, and I love the idea too, that it's not just information on his, like what he did, it's the information that might lead to his arrest or capture. So it's like almost like a bounty as opposed right. to simply, Hey, who pulled the gun in an, in an alleyway where there were no witnesses? It's, it's, Hey, get him out of Russia. So yeah, you wonder if there's some kind of a team type group that's going to be incentivized to take extra legal action and show up with him, you know, outside the, uh, federal penitentiary and, you know, in, in, in Leavenworth or something crazy like that. I, right. It's an odd thing for the government to, you know, to, to, to incentivize, but right. Cause there's really no way to do it. Le I don't know how you would get them right. out of there legally. And uh, whether they would even allow that to happen unless you pulled some like MI5 CIA secret agent stuff, you know? <laughs> But I love I, I love the idea though of there's some team right now like studying psychology at the University of Florida or or UCF or something and they feel they've you know they've cracked the code for social engineering for the good guys and they conduct some very elaborate you know catfishing scheme where they get him to come to like the next Taylor Swift concert in the U.S. <laughs> and instead you know instead they're waiting out there in a van and they put him in there. You know, right. I think t somehow Taylor Swift could maybe get involved in this. That's the, what's the one thing that can motivate people across the world to leave their protective enclaves? Yeah. I think the government is going about this wrong. It should have been <laughs> <laughs> approached differently, but, um, 
but yeah, like the the thing that bothered me the most about the whole scenario is he clearly doesn't care about what the government, what any American thinks, but it's kind of like he's fully giving a middle finger <laughs> to the government. Like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's the really unique circumstances of you know, even pre-Ukraine invasion, maybe there could have been some kind of dialogue, probably not extradition, but there may have been an opportunity for uh, Russia to have a conversation or he, or maybe he would feel that he could operate with less impunity. Uh, but now, in, because of the, the sort of open hostilities, all this sort of bad criminal acts that are clearly happening. I mean, these are these are criminal acts that are occurring um, cross border. There's no there's no dispute about the fact that the criminal. Maybe he has a dispute that it's him, but he's essentially taking credit for this stuff for at least a lot of it. And you know, you would think you know if, if someone robbed a bank in Russia and they show up in the United States, either U.S. U.S. citizen goes, robs a bank in Russia, comes back to the United States. That person is not going to say, I got away with a bank robbery. There's still going to be some sort of shame, mm -hmm. I think, as part of culture. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's not the case of what appears to be happening in Russia right now. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, because I think we've always assumed and have known through lit like some literature and things that has been in Russia um, for years that they feel this way, but here he's being quite blatant about it. And I mean, maybe this causes some of his friends to turn on him or, or, or you know, lure him out uh, who otherwise might not think it true. But I mean, look, the money that's involved in these ransomware events is gigantic. Almost $10 million in a weird way isn't enough. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's also a great point. When you compare the the ransom <laughs> for this guy to what ransomware gangs are asking of just one target sometimes, but definitely like what they're making in a month, even, no, that's nothing to them. I mean, Kelly, you, you look at these issues, you know, as closely as anybody does. I mean, what are some ways that the companies and individuals can protect themselves from these sorts of organized, persistent, smart criminal threats? I think that it really lies with training your end users to be, I don't know, to make good security decisions, but not just that, because that sounds like a vendor pitch, but um, more why incentivize them to change their behavior, showing people how what they learn about these issues and how that can affect their lives at home and protect their own personal lives. Because I think it's easy to feel, I don't know, not as invested when you're protecting just the place where you work. Um, but when you're able to tie that back into your own life, your own kids, your grandparents, anybody that you love and consider family. Um, I think that's what makes it more real. Um, so helping people understand how these simple tips, um, becoming a little more mindful of the things they're clicking and downloading every day. Um, I think that's really the key to helping um, outside of any crazy new tech or AI that who knows, you know, <laughs> it's 2023. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Jack Clabby, a cybersecurity attorney at Carlton Fields, PA, here in Tampa, Florida. And with me, as always, is Kaylee Melton, who's the vice president, U.S. remote publishing teams at Know Before. After a short break, we're going to chat with Nick Biasini. Nick's the head of outreach for Cisco Talos. He's also, I'm told, a connoisseur of some of the world's greatest coffees. Stay alert. We'll be right back. Welcome to No Password Required, a monthly conversation that introduces you to some of the top talent in the world of cybersecurity. And welcome back. Our guest is Nick Biasini. Nick, welcome to No Password Required. All right, so just to kind of get started, can you give us a breakdown of your current role at Cisco Talos? What kind of things do you do? Uh, what are your responsibilities? So historically, I was a threat researcher uh, focused primarily on public-facing research. So the stuff that shows up on the blog or shows up in a white paper, shows up at a conference. Uh, now I actually run the team of threat researchers. So I lead a global team of threat researchers that are focused on the public side of research. So if you see a blog that comes out of Talos, you see Talos quoted in the media, you see a presentation out of Talos, odds are that's either from my team or my team is involved in some way. And the public side of it is the end product. It doesn't mean that everything they're collecting comes from public sources, right? Correct, correct. Okay. This, this, is, this is purely in regards to the output of the research. So all of our research is public facing. It's all designed to be released out to the public as opposed to be used internally or used for partners or things like that. All right, so what, what gets you to here? right? Where did you start your journey for cybersecurity? Tell us a little bit about that and, and, and then how you kind of got found for this job. Sure. Uh, so my original gig out of college was actually helping defend the national airspace for the FAA as a contractor. Uh, during my years there, I was fortunate enough to be a, an analyst. I was a lead analyst, managed teams of analysts. Uh, I was an IPS engineer, a SIM engineer, vulnerability assessment engineer, uh, anomaly detection system engineer. I basically was able to play with a whole bunch of tech and do a lot of stuff. Uh, and that allowed me to kind of really broadly kind of grow my security skill set, if that makes sense. It does. Uh, and then in the time since then, uh, I kind of moved into an MSSP role for a while and then applied to a job at a new organization called Cisco Talos because uh, they had rebranded only a month or two before I joined the organization. And then since that time, I spent all my time doing threat research. So, well, I did until I was a manager. Until I was a manager, <laughs> I spent all my time doing threat research. Now I'm a manager, I do not have nearly as much time for threat research anymore. Does that bother you? Do you miss threat research? I do. It's it's a hard it's a hard thing. Like I I have immense pride for the work that my team produces and the the content that they produce, but it is very hard to not be in there looking at the malware and doing the analysis that I used to do. It's a, it's very tough uh, to give it up. I, I refuse to give it up completely, but I just don't have the time to do it like I did before. There was like a, a famous study. I'm going to butcher this like 25 years ago about all the managers at GE. Like they were unbelievable uh, engineers, high-performing engineers. They put them in a management role and suddenly these guys are miserable and they want to leave. Uh, and they think they interviewed them all and they were like, oh, 
because this guy used to work on aircraft turbines and now is sitting at a desk. And this guy or this woman used to work, you know, in the field doing this and now they're sitting at a desk. How do you stay motivated, Nick, to, to be excited when you're not doing the hands-on stuff? Well, I get to look at the really cool stuff that my folks are doing. So that is one of the best things for me is I, I kind of get to see the research as it's coming up. And I also get to kind of feed ideas. So if I come up with cool ideas, I can kind of feed that into my folks to be able to run it down. And I don't give it up completely. That's that's the other part is I still dabble. I still write. I tend to write. I hate this word, but I tend to write more thought leadership stuff and less technical stuff now. <laughs> but uh, I definitely still try to write and contribute as well. <laughs> I love thought leadership like because it, it's like the kind of thing, the first time you hear it, it's really, really powerful. And then <laughs> you're like, do we have to keep still using this phrase? So I, I share your sort of, but it's true. It's the best. I haven't heard a better one to describe what it is. Yeah. I mean, it, it's not as technical, but that just doesn't flow as well. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. To go back to the gig with the FAA though, I mean, that's like mm -hmm. a notoriously, like when, when you're like using a metaphor of the most stressful job, you talk about an air traffic controller. And then I have to imagine that the security analyst for that role is like the stressful job within the stressful job. Like, how do you, how did you manage beginning your career? How did you manage all that stress? Uh, it was tough. I, the, the one advantage that I had there is we had an incredible team of folks. So I had a very strong security team to kind of help me learn and, and to brace me for that. But there is inherent stress when you're dealing with air traffic control, because you're doing configuration changes and, and things on devices that can take aircraft out of the air. So you're, yeah. you're very, very, very cognizant of the things that you're doing. It's also an incredibly controlled environment. So that's another interesting aspect that's very different than other groups that I've been in is that is probably the most highly controlled environment I've ever been in. All commands are basically audited. Like everything is, is very, very tightly controlled for obvious reasons. Did your responsibilities include sort of physical security or, or cybersecurity or combination of those things? Uh, it was it was primarily around cybersecurity. So okay. we were more tasked with protecting the infrastructure associated with the FAA's communications. So the the devices, the the things, the conduit that the data moves through, that was our purview. Okay. Can, can I ask a question? It's always bothered me. Does using mm -hmm. a cell phone on an airplane does it it hurt? <laughs> does it hurt security? So I my personal take <laughs> is no. So it, what okay. it is done is out of an abundance of caution. So okay. the odds of it causing a problem are astronomically low, but they do exist. So they kind of take the, the stake of because there is a risk, it's better for us to mitigate it, even though it's like one in a million chance, yeah. it's just not worth. And that, that's true of the FAA generally. They are, you know, if anybody who flies knows there is a huge amount of requirements to be able to be a pilot in the air. And they take that stuff very, very, very seriously. Jack would, is out here asking the real questions for all of us. I wish that they always compare like, well, air, air travel is safer than travel in the car. And you know, the statistics are very good because of the work of the FAA and their partners. But it's sort of like with car travel, it's sort of like we know that using a cell phone in the car distracts people and causes accidents. But we, you know, and yet here we are, everybody's using their phones in the car. I wish I want to, I want to ban in all form of travel for cell phone usage. So you heard it here, Kaylee, first. I, I, <laughs> I'll the only credit problem with you that later. is I need my music and my podcast. Totally. <laughs> I can't <laughs> not have that while I'm driving. Totally, yeah. The hands-free, yeah, it should 
plugged in, tucked away. You know, I plugged in, tucked away, I think. But yeah, exactly. I want to access all that stuff uh, with voice commands or something like that. Um, all right. So you have two kind of cool different roles, like the FAA responsibility, narrow to an industry, um, but really intense. And then you move to Talos, which is in some ways much broader, but no less intense because of the importance of the role. How has that been different? What was that transition like for you? Um, it, it's been an, so it wasn't a, a straight transition. I had a okay. little bit of a gap in between when I was doing MSSP work, but still the, the change, honestly, the biggest change for me is I can affect change at scale now. So before I was protecting the FAA, which is, which is great. It's a great job. I very much enjoyed it. Now I can protect huge chunks of the internet. I can protect everyone who owns a Cisco device. That's, that's a much broader, it's, it's much broader, but in some ways it's a lot more impact than I would have otherwise. Additionally, because I can speak publicly, I have the ability to kind of shift narrative a little bit. So I can say the things that I've always wanted to say, but say it in a, in a manner that actually can try and affect change or make a difference. And that that's, that's a big thing for me as well. That's great. Yeah. And, and, that's true because people listen to you when you talk, right? I mean, that, that's what's really kind of cool about it from the position that you're in. When Cisco Talos says something, people are going to respond. You actually, you can nudge, you can shove, and, and you have an impact. That must be a fun thing to see. It, it's, it has its pluses and minuses. I mean, you have to deal with press, which can always be entertaining and different. Uh, it's a good thing and a bad thing. So there's there's pluses and minuses to that like there is to everything else. <laughs> is this something that you thought you would do, like public no. speaking and... <laughs> Not, not even a little bit. I can, if I'm honest with you, when I started, I was terrified of this. Like I didn't, I had to do one presentation when I was at my previous gig where I presented for the CISO of our organization and the CISO of our partner organizations. And that was horrifically nerve wracking. And now I walk into those rooms all the time and it's nothing. So it, it, yeah, definitely not something I thought I would ever do. It it was like a a dream of mine to someday present at a conference. And now I've done it a hundred times, never something I actually thought I would ever do. That that is one of the reasons why I tell people apply for jobs. Doesn't matter if you're qualified, if you want to do it, apply for the job. (laughs) I totally agree. All right. So Nick, in your career, I think you've had either the opportunity or the misfortune to work on some of the biggest and sort of headline grabbing cybersecurity events. Uh, one of the ones I think you said was the most interesting or among the most interesting was Sam Sam. Can you talk about that and, and really why that sticks out to you? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I worked on NotPetya, I worked on WannaCry, I worked on Log4j, I've worked on all those things. But the the one that stick, sticks out to me probably more than most is Sam Sam. Uh, Sam Sam was not really that notable of a, of a threat. They were a ransomware group. But what made them stand out is they were one of, if not the first group to start targeting enterprises and start targeting enterprises in a wide way. So this was the first group that was like hitting 10, 15, 20 servers inside of an organization and sending out notes saying, hey, it's this much to decrypt one server. It's this much to encrypt a bunch of servers. And when we were looking at this, we were thinking, you know, this is this is a very lucrative avenue. I, I have a feeling that this is going to be something that we're going to see a lot more of. And now fast forward a couple of years, big game hunting and the ransomware cartels are probably the biggest thing out there. Oh, man. Well, yeah. I mean, is that your view? Like at a high level, what's the current threat landscape look like to, you know, medium to large size companies? I mean, it, 
So if you're in one of the areas where a state-sponsored group is going to be coming after you, that probably should be your highest concern. But that's that's by far, that's not everyone. For okay. everyday consumers, it is by far and away ransomware and extortion cartels. Uh, they, in, instead of them having to break into your network, they're just basically looking opportunistically for wherever they can get in. So they are, without a doubt, the most the most challenging thing that enterprises face. On top of that, they're not bad. Like these folks know what they're doing. Okay. You're not dealing with unsophisticated adversaries here. You're dealing with folks who are creative. They're adaptive. They're able to kind of think on their feet and move and pivot as they go. This isn't someone who's just running a script and being done. A lot of the times, these are folks that know what they're doing. Nick, where are they and where are they getting the training? Like where are they learning these skills? So uh, in a lot of regions of the world, a lot of education is free and you get a lot of education in a lot of areas and a lot of varying skill levels. Okay. Uh, so you have a lot of ability for a lot of very, very highly talented people. And let's be honest, there are certain regions of the world where the economies aren't great, where job prospects aren't great. And if you have this particular skill set, you can leverage it into a very, very lucrative career. And for a lot of people, it's really their only option. It's just like to go back to the ransomware, like for the for, for larger companies that are the target of ransomware, at least in my own practice, I've seen mostly double extortionate. Right now, now it's ransomware locking it up and taking things in, threatening to turn them over. Is there still like is the first kind of ransomware, the the old plain vanilla lock it up ransomware, is that still happening? Like at a high level? Uh, it- it does still happen. I, I will say that we're seeing more and more extortion only plays yeah. in in environments as opposed to doing ransomware. And if you think about it logically, it kind of makes sense. If you're going to deploy ransomware, you likely need domain admin. You likely need to deploy software on a whole bunch of systems and get very, very high levels of access. If you're just doing exfiltration, you can kind of hang around and poke around and not do super noisy things that allows you to kind of exfiltrate that data. Additionally, there may be breach reporting requirements that they could potentially sidestep based on what they're doing or what they're not doing. So that is, again, these folks are very, very keen. Like we see in chat logs, they bring up what their revenue is, what their annual revenue is, what their cash is, how much they pay out their CEOs and stuff like that. They're very knowledgeable of the systems that they're going after. So they're going to use that stuff against you. Some of them can even know the insurance limits. Like, yeah, because it's not at all surprising. They probably run into them a lot, unfortunately. Oh, we know who you're using. That's here's the limit. Yeah, that's wild. What? Um, so, all right. Uh, as part of the work that you've done in this space, though, I think you've said the most difficult phone calls to make are the ones that involve lawyers. What? What, what is it about lawyers that makes it more difficult? Well, so that that's from my own personal preference, because okay. if I'm involving lawyers, there is bad things afoot. That, okay. that is basically what it is. It has nothing to do. I like lawyers. Lawyers are great. Lawyers protect me. I love lawyers. But I, I it's not always a good day when it's like, I need to go talk to a lawyer. That's not that's not always the best conversation to have. Did Jack I, pay you to say that oh, you man. love lawyers? <laughs> Everybody, n- nobody likes lawyers, but everyone likes their lawyer. You know, it's like, you're, it's like Congress. Nobody likes Congress, but if you ask them about their own congressperson, you're like, oh, she's pretty good. You know, I, we like what she's doing. That's true. I, we have to begin a lot of my conversations with, it's really nice to meet you, but I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. 
I think, uh, Nick, one of the things that your research, I believe, uncovered, and I think named, was this concept of domain shadowing. Mm-hmm. Can, can you just talk about for the audience, you know, what is domain shattering uh, and, and a little bit about the discovery? Yeah, that, that was one of my first big discoveries when I started becoming a threat researcher. So at the time, I was heavily researching exploit kits, which aren't super common anymore, but back five, six, seven years ago was incredibly prevalent on the threat landscape. And part of that is using domains to host your exploit kit, right? So what I found was adversaries, instead of registering their own domains, were compromising registrant accounts and then registering a bunch of subdomains under their main domains. So that allows them, instead of having to go out and register domains, if they're lucky, they compromise a registrant account that owns 500 domains. And they can sit here and create hundreds, if not thousands of subdomains and use that as a mechanism to to host exploit kits. And we ended up seeing this get more widely adopted into like other threat landscape or areas of the threat landscape where other groups started to do this. But then once who is information became disappeared, we we don't see it as much anymore. It's still out there, but once who is information became largely private, you didn't see as much easy targeting. Like if you have an email address you can go after, that's something for you to go hunt and try and get access to. Got it. That's yeah, that's really cool. It seems like it would have really wide-reaching um, negative consequences for phishing in general as well because, you know, if you have taken over a domain, you can easily make it look like something you're sending look, comes from that exact domain. Yep, exactly. And uh, from a reputation perspective, right? You're not having to start from scratch. You're building off of the reputation of that core website. So if you happen to compromise a website that's been around for six years even though you're not compromising the website, you just have access to the domain because it's a subdomain. It's going to build off of the reputation of that original domain. Part of the research that your team does is opportunistic or a lot of it is. Can you talk about that uh, sort of that, that nature? Yeah. Uh, So there's kind of two ways that things go. Um, I would say it's, it's either hair on fire or take your time. So if, if we're dealing with a bunch of publicly available information and we stumble across something, it is you need to move very, very quickly and in an opportunistic manner uh, because there's lots of eyes. Like eight years ago, it might not have been this way, but today there's a ton of threat researchers out there. There's a ton of groups writing reports and churning out data and you have to be agile on your feet. The, the other thing that we have is we have a huge amount of tooling in place to do hunting across various data sets. So a lot of that will be, it's, it's opportunistic in that we're looking for indicators of specific things, uh, but we're going to go run that down in a slightly slower manner because we're not on the clock against other uh, competitors to get data out. What, what's a common, like, what are some of the most common characteristics among the researchers on the Talos team? Uh, a doggedness to continue to research and comfortability with failure. Okay. That would be the biggest thing that I say. Uh, and that, that's something that I talk about constantly in the interviews that I have for the folks on my team is the most important thing you need to be okay with is failing. Because that's in good. the work that we do, you're going to spend a lot of time failing. You're going to fail exponentially more times than you're going to succeed. And you got to have that that dogged determination to continue to go back and keep going back to the well and know that you're going to eventually find the thing that you're looking for. And inevitably they do, but yeah, that, that to me is the tenacity to continue to go back and then willingness and and desire to learn new things. 
Because let me tell you, you start out running down this this malware family, and then you find out, oh, it's actually a mobile malware family, and now I need to get spun up on arm reversing and be able to do some arm reversing to be able to, to understand, like, that type of stuff, like, the willingness to just be like, jump in. Like, I don't know a lot, but I'm willing to try. Those are the things that I always look for out of my folks. It's, a, it's like um, being, you know, understanding that if I'm going to swing and miss a hundred times that the one I connect is going to be that much more fun, right? Like we're going to get there and we're going to fail a million times along the way, but we're going to just focus on the wins and not dwell on the losses. That's great. What a great yeah. concept. There's, there's nothing more, there's nothing more frustrating than spending like four days running something down and then realizing it's just a red team that's doing it. And there's nothing you can do about it. It's like, Oh, this is just a red team doing an exercise. Great. I wasted four days. Let me go back and start <laughs> over again. All right. Just to, to go back to the sort of outset, even before your career really started, can you tell us, mm-hmm. you know, you had a, technological curiosity, probably as a young person, can you give us an example maybe of a time when your technological curiosity landed you in hot water? Yes, absolutely. So when I was, I want to say like eight or nine, I don't know, it was when I was young. Um, we had a, I'm dating myself here, but we had a gateway computer. I don't know if anybody remembers gateways from back in the day. Yes. The cow print, uh, right? The cow yes, print boxes. Yes. Oh, those are, yes, yeah. They, <laughs> That was like one of the first big computer. That was like pre Dell, like the that that wave of computers. Awesome. Uh, but I, I had one of those with a whopping four megabytes of RAM, I think. But um, <laughs> what what happened was is my my mom left for the day, and when she came back, I was curious how it worked, so I ripped it completely apart and tore all the parts oh. out of it, like disassembled the entire thing. She was none too happy because as those of you that know what gateway computers are, they were not cheap. It was quite a thing to have a computer. Uh, luckily, I was able to put it back together, but <laughs> she was she was none too happy about my my curiosity at that at that point. But yeah, I've always think- been like that. I've always been like tinkering, tinkering with stuff, taking stuff apart. Is kind of how I've always been. <laughs> Do you think that her anger uh, spurred you to be better at putting it back together? Do you think maybe if you hadn't, if she hadn't gotten mad that you would have never even (laughs) gone through this whole career? No, I definitely, I definitely was already (laughs) like down that path. I was already like playing games and trying to figure out how to, how to cheat at games and all that. That's where a lot of the, the initial hacking side of things starts is I want to, I want to do better at games without having to do better at games. How can I do that? So did you have a game shark? Uh, I did at one point. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Nick, I mean, like one of the, one of the fears now about AI is that it's going to defense is going to overwhelm offense or offense is going to overwhelm defense. There's a conversation about this. Who do you think is going to use it more effectively? The white hats or the black hats here? What what do you see for the future of that? Um, So, I honestly think that the white hats are going to see more benefit in the end because on the black hat side of things, it, it helps people that are already in this space get better, but it doesn't like create a lot of new attackers, right? Cause it, okay. like AI, like the generative AI stuff, you can do great things like write very convincing lures, but a lure is just a lure. You can't launch a phishing campaign. You can't manage infrastructure. You can't launch a command and control server using AI. That doesn't work. You might be able to look up instructions on how to do it, but you still have to go out there and do it yourself. 
So the the big thing that you're going to see on the adversary side is we're going to see lures get a lot better. We're going to see adversaries that weren't sophisticated be a lot more sophisticated. But I yeah. I think from a defender perspective, it can help a lot. Junior analysts now suddenly have a much better capability to be able to do higher level work. Maybe you don't have to have your senior analysts reviewing as as closely or it allows them to maybe do a little bit more deeper hunting. Got it. The, the other thing is the real value of AI is not in these generative language things that we're dealing with. It's actually using AI and training it on a data set and managing it. And I think that is where you're going to see in the yeah. future enterprises really benefit because that stuff is very expensive. There's not yeah. going to be a bunch of criminal organizations that are going to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to get access into using these types of, of mechanisms. That's a great point. And it's like getting rid of repetitious tax, tasks to free up thinking tasks for humans to do, right, is one immediate use. And then I just always worry that you're going to have, I mean, you're talking about it a moment ago, you talked about a white team looking and finding a red team, right? Basically, it's going to be one AI finding another AI. And then just like AI is going at each other forever. But I mean, at the end, of, on, the, on the black hat side, you still need somebody to collect the money, right? It can't just be turn the AI exactly. on and wait by the... Uh, Wait by the bank account. There still has to be decisions um, on it, and an AI can't. Spend we haven't money. gotten to the. Yeah, we haven't gotten to the point where you can take an AI and say, "Hey, go compromise this business," and it goes <laughs> off and does it. That doesn't exist like that. That that capability, thankfully, doesn't exist and won't exist for a really long time. Hopefully. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Nick. We're going to take a short break. Uh, when we return, we're going to Kaylee is going to take Nick through the lifestyle polygraph. So please stay with us. You're listening to the No Password Required Podcast. We cover cybersecurity and a lot of other stuff. Welcome back. Nick, are you ready for our lifestyle polygraph? Sure, let's do this. All right. First question. What type of gaming is better? In-person console stuff from early childhood or the modern computer-based stuff where you can game with people around the world? So I'm nostalgic, so I will go with old-school gaming on the couch because it's much easier to throw stuff at people that are sitting next to you than yell (laughs) at people that are across the planet. I really like that answer. I didn't expect the latter part. I really appreciate that. Is your like normal rig when you're doing research or is it like five computers? Like, is it like what I would imagine from like a movie? Do you have like monitors monitors. all over the place? Okay. I only have two monitors now. I'm a manager now. I don't need five monitors anymore. I only need a couple. (laughs) (laughs) I totally understand that as well. (laughs) All right. Number two. Is there a band that you've never seen live that you would jump at the opportunity if they were to go on tour again? Absolutely. Rage Against the Machine, without a doubt. They are one of my only bands on my bucket list that I never got a chance to see. And oddly enough, I started listening to them one week after they played a small club show in the town that I lived in at the time. So I missed out, just just missed out on my one opportunity to see them. Oh, man. That's awful. <laughs> so sorry. I've got I've sorry. got a rel- oh no. No, please. I've got a relatively new uh serious subscription and I one of the things I discovered pretty quickly is that Tom Morello has about 400 different shows 
I think he just makes serious shows on a, like 10 out of every 24 hours. He's like, I'm like, hey, what is Tom Rell up to? And it's like Radio Commandante or it's like, you know, like all this crazy stuff that he's got on. It, like, what is the guy? It's like he can't rest. All he wants to do is make serious shows uh, where he mostly plays Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> Supposedly they're doing something again. Or maybe, I, I, I believe at one point he said something about it on one of the 500 hours I've listened to in the last two weeks. Yeah, they had they had a huge concert like tour planned right as the pandemic hit, and I think oh. all of that stuff ended up getting canceled. So it was oh. it was kind of I don't know. I hope that they go back out on tour again, but we'll see. It seems like everybody is like one last hurrah for some reason lately. It's like everybody's <laughs> going out there for that one more final. We're gonna tour one more time type of thing. So hopefully, Rage gets caught up in that as well. <laughs> I like to think that you're single-handedly in charge of the curse of them <laughs> not having shows. <laughs> um, Follow-up question, though. Why do you mm-hmm. think their music speaks to you? Uh, so it, it, it speaks to a lot of the wrongs in the world, probably more than anything else. I mean, their their music tends to be very politically motivated and it speaks a lot about the the challenges that people face around the planet and that's probably one of the reasons why it resonates most with me right on yeah i feel the same way (laughs) number three many americans remember the lake placid olympic games for an unlock unlikely hockey gold medal your olympic moment was a bit different what do you remember most about the 1980 winter games so I don't mo- remember much about the 1980 games because I wasn't alive yet, but I almost was. Um, <laughs> my parents were actually across the street from the uh, the Miracle on Ice when it happened in Lake Placid. Uh, if you if you flash forward like eight years, I actually was able to go back. I grew up in that area of New York, a little cool. bit south of there. So I went up to Lake Placid and I actually got to do a bobsled run, which was kind of cool. I got to go down what? the the bobsled run that they used in the Olympics in 1980. They had this thing. I doubt it still exists anymore because it seemed super dangerous, but I basically (laughs) got into a bobsled with like a person in front of me, a person behind me. And I think my dad was, was behind me and they basically just put you in this thing and you go down a bob. I didn't have a helmet on nothing. Just went down a bobsled run for like, for like a minute. (laughs) It was awesome. It's something I'll never forget. But yeah, I I highly doubt stuff like that exists anymore. The the joy of the eighties, I guess. That is that is awesome. I do think that somewhere like in upstate New York, there's like a whole generation of people who got to do a bobsled run. Like they're probably doing cool stuff. Like what a what an awesome thing to be able to do. It's definitely something that that is one of the more memorable things that I remember from my childhood was having the opportunity to do that. That's so awesome. All right. Number four, what is your process for a perfect cup of coffee? Oh man, this is, this is a, an involved process for me. So I, I am a coffee fanatic when it comes to, to brewing and making coffee. I roast my own beans. I almost exclusively do pour over. So a lot of my day consists of me weighing out the coffee beans that I want to grind up, fresh grinding them and then putting them into my pour over rig and then weighing out the water combination to make sure that I have the proper ratio between bean weight and water weight, which (laughs) technically is supposed to be 20 grams of coffee, 300 grams of water. But I kind of adjust that to my personal taste. 
But yeah, that that is that is my process for a perfect cup of coffee. You will get flavor notes out of that that you will not get out of regular coffee distribution or the way that you regularly brew coffee. I can't. But it also takes a lot of time. It. Yeah, it's all about weight. It, it's all about bean weight to water weight, and the reason is is that coffee beans all weigh differently. So if you do oh. it by scoop, it is completely inconsistent. You have to do it oh, by weight yeah. to make it consistent. Gotcha. Well, so, so where did this obsession start? Or maybe I should say passion, not obsession. <laughs> Both are accurate. <laughs> uh, it's probably a decade ago, I would think. Maybe a little bit less than that. It, it probably coincided. I live in Austin, Texas. A lot of it coincided with me moving to Austin. There's a pretty incredible coffee scene here. Cool. So it kind of opened my eyes to kind of being open to the different regions of the world, what single origin coffee is, what the tasting notes are for coffees out of Africa, out of Central America, South America, Asia, how different areas of the world treat their beans, how bean, there's a whole, and then I started getting into roasting and that, that was another whole thing that I've been into now for four or five years as well. So I roast my coffee on top of, of actually making it every day as well. I was about to ask, is roasting part of that? (laughs) Can you roast? is. Like in a civilian kitchen, can you can you roast or do you need special equipment to pull off a roast? So it depends on how good you want it to be. So so technically you can you can roast coffee like on a stove with a pan, okay. but you have to like sit there and stir it all the time. One of the favorite things uh, for people to use actually at home is a stove based popcorn poppers because they have like a handle on the That's top awesome. that allows you to like move the the popcorn kernels. While it pops, it's the same idea for coffee roasting. You have to keep the beans moving while you're doing it. But most people have, like I have a coffee roaster in my kitchen. Uh, That's a small air roaster. But yeah, there are ways to do it without coffee roasting or without specialized equipment. Just won't be quite the same. So if you're on a road trip then and you stop at a gas station, would you get a cup or would you rather just go without Depends how desperate I am for caffeine. <laughs> I honestly, what I would probably do is look for a can of cold brew somewhere in the in the cold <laughs> section, as opposed to trying to drink the whatever, however old the the coffee is that they have in their little pot. So yeah, I would I would definitely drink coffee, but I'm not going to drink the coffee that they have coming out of their machines. <laughs> That's a special roast for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and last question. In January, you are headed to balmy Antarctica. Have you made a decision on the polar plunge? Uh, Not a final decision. I'm still leaning towards yes, but we'll kind of have to see how the next few months go to see if if I'm able to actually pull it off. We'll see. I I hope so, but we'll see. You're braver (laughs) than I am. (laughs) I mean, I figure I'm only going to be there once. I I almost owe it to myself to do it because, I mean, I'm never going to get that opportunity again, so... We'll see. Right. We'll see how it goes. Leaning if you're gonna yes. get, if you're gonna get hypothermia, you might as well say you got it in Antarctica. <laughs> and, and they actually record it for you, so you get to like have pictures <laughs> of yourself doing it as well, so you can prove that you actually did it. Amazing. <laughs> I, it's like, it, what is it? The it, one of the top determinants would be how fluffy the towel is. I think waiting for you on the other end of it. If you're just like putting your own clothes back on again, I think it's a hard no. You need like to be some sort of transition garment. I don't know. For me, it's like, can I get a wetsuit? (laughs) 
but we'll see. Maybe I'll be I'll be bold. We'll see. I I, I have every every indication that I'll do it, but you know when the moment comes, uh, we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, well, Nick, thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be checking in with you. I think after your trip to see how that went. Um, if our listeners want to connect with you directly, how, how can they do that? Uh, I'm on Twitter on Mastodon. You can always reach out to me on social media uh, on. I think I'm both. I'm at infosec underscore Nick. Uh, definitely on Twitter. I believe that's what I'm on at infosec dot exchange for Mastodon as well. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm around. Come see me at conferences. I'll be speaking at Cisco Live next week. Uh, I'll sure I'll be out at Black Hat again. Always come and say hi. I'm always happy to talk to people about what they're experiencing and what they want to know about the threat landscape. Cool. Thank you, Nick. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. But first, Kaylee, what did you learn today? This is a bit unexpected, but I learned the correct ratio for a proper cup of coffee is 20 grams of coffee beans to 100 grams of water. (laughs) (laughs) I've been doing it right. It's weight, not scoops. Weight, not scoops. That's what I take away. I, I also learned that it was pretty awesome to be a kid in the late 1980s in the Lake Placid area, because with appropriate supervision, I'll put that in quotes, you could take an actual bobsled run down the Olympic bobsled run, which is amazing. Amazing. And without the, uh, like the obstruction of a helmet as well, free to enjoy (laughs) the full experience. (laughs) I want to imagine too, that everyone was smoking cigarettes just to, you know, everyone on the bobsled currently had a lit cigarette. (laughs) That's how I'm going to imagine it. And when they were done, they had full calorie soda. So that's how I imagine it. Well, for the entire no password required team, I'm Jack Clabby. Thank you for listening. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you for listening to the no password required podcast. You can find us on social media at no password pod. Please remember to rate review and subscribe to the no password required podcast. And if you know someone who might like it, Please share it with them. The show is produced by Cyber Florida. And a special thank you goes out to our friends at Carlton Fields. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, cyberflorida.org slash pod. All opinions expressed by the No Password Required podcast participants are their own and do not exclusively represent the views and opinions of Cyber Florida.